Okay, First Samuel, chapter number one. First Samuel, chapter number one. We're going to spend just a few weeks here in a study, a, a character study on uh, the life of Hannah and the life of Samuel, her son. The overall message that we are working through together in these studies has the title, Living Godly in an Ungodly World. Seen from two different generations and uh, putting their lives down here in black and white as God does in Scripture, following through and, and seeing what we glean from that because I, I'm pretty sure that we can probably use that title for our day and age too. We live in an ungodly world, and uh, our call is still to be godly. So with that, I hope we gain things in our study here, especially today. 1 Samuel 1, verse 10, speaking of Hannah, it's a simple phrase. It says, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. Isn't that an interesting verse? That's our our the center of our thoughts here this morning. Heavenly Father, help us with this as we study into the life of this godly lady. Teach us from the example of her life how we too can live godly in an ungodly day and uh, challenge us with it, I pray. For we all appreciate uh, your life that you've given to us, the work that you do in our hearts and lives, the, the way you provide for us, Throughout the entire week, we meet here for the purpose of worship, but we also meet here for the purpose of training, that we might come to know you better, trust you more. And we certainly pray that everything we go through today might be that which brings us to a closer uh, image of Christ. So help us today as we study together and challenge us with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm very aware as we introduced this last week from 1 Samuel chapter 1 and the life of Hannah that uh, most of it was negative in nature. And I can't help the setting of our study. That's true. It's set in a very dark frame. Uh, sometimes, though, to see beauty, you've got to set it in a dark frame. Uh, that's how we see the contrast. I really do hope that our lives are a contrast to the world around us. That people see something in us that stands out and, and makes them want to know more about Christ and about the God we love. But the first part of 1 Samuel is really a historical context that's very important. It's during the time of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to help you try to understand it. You might already know a lot of this yourself, but how does this fit into history, the story that we're reading of the life of Hannah? There were several judges uh, in the book called Judges that God sent to oversee and rescue Israel. In a span of 300 years, they had these judges. So the book doesn't look that long, does it? Uh, matter of fact, it's easy reading, if you don't mind some very tough stories, but uh, it's a 300-year period 
that God is at work there. And what we have seen in our study of such a book, that there, there is a pattern to those 300 years, which are very interesting. Uh, some theologians and historians call it the cycle of sin. And it follows this pattern all the way through the book. The people picture them like the uh, face of a clock for a minute, up at the top. The people are right with the Lord, and put that in brackets a little bit, okay? Because they're, they're right with the Lord, but maybe not perfect, but they're right with the Lord. And that's where we usually find them in the first place. And then at some point, as the hand starts to move down the dial, the people get involved in sin. And it was not uncommon in the book of Judges for that sin to be disobedience to the law and idolatry. And that would spring up often, and those are the two big issues that would take the people from right with the Lord to wrong with the Lord in a big hurry. And so here suddenly they're not right with the Lord, and the Lord in his faithfulness, as he promised in the law, brought punishment upon them. And if you read the last couple of chapters of Deuteronomy, he told them what to expect. He said, this is what's going to happen to you if you walk away from my law. And he did do that. And they usually ended up in a very distressing time. And more times than not, they were in bondage to an enemy nation. And it could have been somebody as simple as the Philistines or the Ammonites. Or it could have been somebody even more serious in nature. But they were in some sort of bondage suddenly. And that bondage would last for decades on occasion. And that still astounds me that it would go on for so long, sometimes 10, sometimes 15, 20, 30, 40 years that they were in bondage to these enemy nations. And the bondage always seemed to include the loss of their farms and their crops, their servants and other things, which was very significant in an agricultural environment. You could appreciate that. But they underwent terrible punishments from the Lord because of their disobedience. And for whatever reason, the people remained unturned for long durations. Now, some of us are are more likely, if we get in trouble, we want to get it over with quick. You know, I want to say I'm sorry and, and make it right. But... The rebellion of these folks that we read of in the book of Judges seems to be that they would rather go the distress of bondage than to repent before the Lord. And it took decades to get their attention. But someplace along the way, eventually they'd reach their breaking point. And as the clock has been turning somewhere down here at the bottom, they're at the lowest point and they finally turn to the Lord in humility they begged that the Lord would forgive them. They asked the Lord to send them a deliverer to help them out of bondage. And the Lord hears their prayer, and he sends them a judge. And that says the hand is starting to work its way up the other side. And suddenly a judge appears on the scene. Now, this isn't Superman or some other, uh, you know, superhero figure. It was just an average person in among the crowd that the Holy Spirit would use in a unique way in order to rescue the people. Men like Samson and others who did remarkable things, and yet they probably weren't as impressive as we thought they were. 
I still say, if, when we see Samson in heaven someday, he's going to be about five foot six and about 110 pounds. <laughs> and you're going to say, whoa, that's not what I thought. I thought it was Atlas or something. But I just wonder. It's just average everyday people that the Holy Spirit could use and do incredible things with them. Well, what's interesting to me is how often the judge that the Lord sent to them resembled them so well in the way that they thought, in the way they acted, in their nature. The, the Lord would send them a person after their own heart. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. Uh, that's not meant to be a compliment, by the way. It's just, that's what the Lord would do. He'd given a leader like that. But that judge would come nonetheless. And because of God's grace and His mercy and His power, He'd rescue them from bondage, do something remarkable usually, and gain freedom for God's people, and we're back at the top again. So the cycle looks something like this. If you put it on paper, they're right with the Lord, they're sin and rebellion, they're in bondage, they go to repentance. I can't go any further, I have to turn my arm. They, they're rescued by a judge and they're brought back to a relationship with the Lord. 300 years of that. You would think that they'd catch on after the first hundred, maybe. But it went on and on and on. Round and round and round and round. That's the book of Judges for you. Every time that judge died, it didn't take long for the people to go right back into the sin again. Now, that's the way the book is typically described. I want to add one other point to it that I think helps more in the understanding of this because I portrayed it like most people do as a clock face. But if you look at it more like a spiral, like the water going down the drain, as it starts to spin around the cycle, the next time it comes around to what is called right, they're not at the same level, they're here. And then the next time they spin around, they're not at that level, they're here. And it shows a, a really, a, the, everything is, what's a good word for this? Eroding? Everything is falling apart? It's distressing because the heroes become more and more people that, you're like, really? God, God would pick that person? And it just reflected the nature of the people as it went down and down and down and spiraled its way to the bottom. Now, when we come to Hannah's story in 1 Samuel, they're at the bottom. You got the picture now? They have had 300 years of this cycle going down, 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 down. And like I showed you last week, the spiritual leadership in Hannah's day was corrupt to its core. That was a mess. And we saw that. The family Hannah lived in, in today's lingo... It was dysfunctional. Is that a good word for it? They had a problem in the family. The husband was weak. I, I suggest that from what I've gleaned from looking at his life. But he probably fit in very well as a spiritual man in his era. If you base it on where he lived and what he was like, uh, he seemed to rather smooth things over and even accept injustices. Uh, rather than to show courage or faith and stand out in a wicked environment. We don't see that of Elkanah, and we do not find him in Hebrews chapter 11. He was not a judge in that day, although 
Anybody could have been if they just stood up for the Lord. He didn't show that. He didn't show that. And I know I'm a little bit harsh with him. I am. But I read right away he had two wives, and I don't think that was okay in his culture or in any culture. But that's the way it was. He had one wife that provoked the other because she was barren. Think about that for a minute. He knew it. He knew it. Apparently didn't stop it. All he did was load Hannah's plate with extra food. He might have been kind to her, and there's evidence that he loved her indeed, yes. But the text never shows him taking a spiritual lead, and he was a Levite. It doesn't record him praying to the Lord about it, and he should have. But we're not here to study the life of Elkanah. I just just put it out because he happens to be the husband of Hannah. And his family was just dysfunctional, as I said already. So let's put all this together so far. Living in an evil generation where sin runs wild and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That's the description of the time of the judges. Living in a generation where spiritual help is hard to find. Living in a generation when a family life like theirs is undesirable, is contentious, it's mean. The way Hannah was treated, we would call that bullying today. Because they were attacking her based on a physical disability. It wasn't even her own making. Just to be frank with you, simply, I don't think Hannah's world is so much different than ours today. The elements of these things are parallel to the culture we live in right now. Uh, The church has done more to adapt to that culture than it is to stand out and do what's right in the midst of an ungodly world. It's happened too often. And we see bitter attacks of people on people all the time, don't we? We see all those trends around us, and, and I don't think I need to enhance any of that. We know it's true, and we see it. We live in an ungodly world, and so did Hannah. Just setting the picture for you here. And what I find amazing in our study, when we get to verse number 10... Her response to all this, she prayed. Does that sound too simple? Sounds like insignificant things. Many times we say in this way, well, when everything else fails, pray. Don't we think that way sometimes? Maybe not intentionally, but we try this and try this, and then we say, oh, well, maybe we should have prayed about this. It says in verse 10, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. I'm going to break that down into the three parts that I see there. Greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. So let's start with the first one. She was greatly distressed. Uh, That might be an understatement in her day and age. Uh, The Hebrew word for that is mara. You ever hear it before? Somebody took that name for themselves. Wild guess. Trivia time. Naomi. Naomi. You know when Naomi lived? About the same time? She lived in that culture too. Naomi was there. Anyway, we're not studying Naomi right now. But Naomi said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. 
Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And that's the word. Mara is bitter. The King James said that she had bitterness of soul. What is that? Does that sound pretty serious to you? Bitterness of soul? I, I want to give you a picture of it, just for a minute, because it's described to us in another portion of Scripture. If you go to Job chapter 7 with me for a minute. Job chapter 7, that's just before the book of Psalms, if you've got to go this way. All right. Uh, find Job, long book, but just chapter 7 will do. Now, recount with me just for a minute this poor guy named Job. He lost all that he had. We read the story in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book, how he lost all his camels and all his sheep and all his donkeys, his servants, even his children. Remember? Tragedy, the day that the house fell in on him and the wind came blowing by. He lost his health. We find him at the last of, the, of chapter 2 sitting on an ash heap, scraping his wounds with a broken piece of pottery, and his dear wife coming up to him and saying, why don't you just curse God and die? Most of the time we say, well, what a great wife. Maybe she was saying that because she wanted him out of his misery. And not so much, but I don't know, she lost all those things too. And we're not talking about her either, are we? But this is Job's words. Ready? ready? It's in Job 7, start in verse 1. Is not man forced to labor on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade, as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so I am allotted months of vanity, and nights of trouble are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues. And I am continually tossing until dawn. This guy had an alarm clock that never moved. You ever been in one of those nights? Say, oh, it's never going This is his picture. He says, I'm like a guy who's at work and it doesn't seem to stop. I'm like somebody who's gone to, trying to go to sleep and I can't and I'm just tossing all the time. He says in verse 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens, and it runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but breath. My eyes will not again see good. Can you imagine coming to that conclusion? Well, there's no hope for me. I'll never see good. The eyes of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. That's the grave. All right. He who dies, he doesn't come back. He will not return to his house again. He will not know the place anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Can you hear his words? Wow, Job. 
In the novel, Anne of Green Gables, love that story, fun story. Anne is seen early part of the book saying that she's in the depths of despair. And it was Marilla who corrected her and said that to be in the depths of despair is to turn your back on God. (laughs) And that's the way she corrected her. If it wasn't for the Lord, where would Hannah turn? Think about that for a minute. Remember, she had come to this place in Shiloh for the purpose of worshiping her Lord, right? She came with her husband once a year. They'd come there to worship the Lord. That should be very exciting if it's only one time a year, and that's the only time you get. And she truly wanted to worship the Lord, but her rival came with another purpose. And her rival came to provoke her. And every year it happened that way. Every year it happened that way. It says in verse 6 of 1 Samuel, Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. She went full steam at Hannah every opportunity she could, provoking her to anger. Literally, it reads, And her rival provoked her even to vexation so as to make her tremble. It says in verse 7, and it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her and she would weep and would not eat. In J. Vernon McGee's commentary, he makes one simple statement. He says, Hannah was probably one of the most miserable persons in the world at that time. Did she know the Lord? Yeah. She lived in an ungodly world and it pressed on her. It pressed heavy on her all the time. How easy would it be for bitterness to take root? Just let it grow like a weed where it chokes out all the other things that are good. How easy would it be to let it flower and to recede and then to eventually have a whole life that looks like a pasture of useless vegetation? Many times I think, folks, when we're treated with something unjust, at that moment we seem to have a couple of options available to us for response. In our current culture, the response typically is retaliation, isn't it? If something's unjust done to me, then I want to strike back. I want to follow the idea of the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth and, and strike back. You know that's not what we're called to do. As Christians, we're supposed to stand up differently in a world, aren't we? Not act like them who strike back. Not act like them whose first response is retaliation. There's a second option that's given to us at that same time. And it may be easy to read in Scripture, but it's very hard to do. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other one. And to him who is desiring to sue you, to take your tunic, 
allow him to have your coat too. And whoever compels you to go one mile, walk the second one with him. And if he asks you to give, he's wishing to borrow from you, don't turn him away. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says this, love your enemies. Bless those cursing you. Do well to those hating you. And ready? Ready? And pray for those abusing and persecuting you. It's easier to read and pray that the Lord gets you out of there. He didn't say that. He says, and pray for those abusing and persecuting you, so that you may become sons of your Father in heaven. What does the Father's sons look like? That's a big contrast to the world around. Pray. (laughs) Honestly, it says that. It's hard when your life is bitter. When there's bitterness right there in the soul. Pray for others. More times than not, the bitterness is caused by others. Pray for others, especially those who are persecuting you. Oh, folks, this is hard stuff. It's hard stuff. I heard the choir needed this one this morning. Is that what I heard over there? I was sitting right back there, and they're quoting from this passage. I don't know what that was about, Sid, but... (laughs) She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord. Don't take the word greatly distressed out of the context. Because she's contrary contrary to the world, isn't she? She's a contrast to everything around her. She's different than the rest. The spiritual leaders could not help her. Her husband did not help her. She was different. I like to call that living godly in an ungodly world. She took her problem to the Lord. It was an impossible problem for her. She couldn't do anything to solve that problem. And she couldn't do anything to solve the bitterness or all those who were around her pressing in so hard. You see, folks, when I use the word godly, I want to explain this for a minute. Godly is a way to describe somebody with the attributes of what God is like. That's godly, what God is like. That's not what the world looks like. That's what God looks like. And we are called to be godly in this world, aren't we? Are we sure of that? We're called to be different than the rest. By our words and by our actions and by our reactions, we are to resemble God and not man. Peter addressed that when he was writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. He's writing to a persecuted church. We can't even imagine the depth of their persecution. We could read about it. We could read about the horrific things they were doing to Christians in that day. The man was Nero. And his, his, what he did to Christians, it's just, I don't even want to talk about it. It's terrible. Terrible. And this is the congregation Peter is writing to. 
They have been hounded for their faith. They have been persecuted to the fullest extent. If anyone could have bitterness, these folks could have. And this is what Peter tells them. Because of this, having girded up the loins of your mind and being sober, perfectly hope on the grace being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep your eye on the end of the game when Jesus Christ is coming. Too often we look at what's around us and say, I can't make it, I can't make it, I can't make it. He says, no, lift up your eyes and look at the end of the story. You know it? You know where you're going to be? You know the end result? Don't take your eyes off of that. That's your hope. Peter says, keep that perfect hope of the grace that's being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as children of obedience, don't fashion yourselves to the former lust of your ignorance. Don't become like everything else or what you used to be. But according to the Holy One who called you, you also become holy in all your conduct Because it is written, be holy, God says, because I am holy. That's countercultural, folks. That's countercultural in our world, too. We live in a do-it-yourself kind of world. The issues of prayer? (laughs) What's that? But we must pray. We must pray. You know what prayer is? It's simply acknowledging that you can't do it. That you are needy. That you have nothing. And you go to the one who is able. You go to the one who has the answer. You go to the one who loves you and cares for you. You go to the one who can. And you ask him for help. Here's a simple thing. If you want one thing out of all this, prayer and pride do not coexist. They cannot. And when you see this lady come before the Lord in prayer, think about it. We say, well, she was out of everything else. But no, she went to prayer. She came there to pray. Her situation was not life-threatening. It was not like facing an army like Goliath. I shared some of this at the very end last week. But the Lord was pleased with her. And the Lord is pleased with us when we bring to Him all our cares. Does He not say, cast your cares upon me because I care for you? Now, a simple thing. You fishermen type of people or ladies, when you cast the line out, we always have a string on it to bring it back. That's the goal, right? You want whatever, take that hook. When this word is used in Peter, casting your care means to let go. Don't keep a string on it. Don't pull it back. Cast it before the Lord. Cast it and leave it there. Cast it and throw it there. Too often we've got a finger on the corner and we kind of drag it back. And then the next day we cast it out and we drag it back. And here he says, I care for you. If you really believe that, then leave it there. Leave it there. He says, bring me your cares. You're heavy hearted. You're burdened. You, you, you don't have your provisions you need. You're, you don't know what to do. Unbelievers, believers are all around you and you, you're still not being met in your need. Come to me. I care. He says, 
I care. There are people around you unable, people unwilling. But the Lord says, come to me. Come to me. Hannah did not seek out her husband to pray for her. Hannah did not seek out Eli to pray for her. She just went to the Lord in prayer. I think that's a beautiful thing. After eating and drinking in Shiloh, it says in verse 9, she went to the temple. That's the tabernacle. There's Eli sitting there. She didn't talk to Eli to start it off. She didn't say, Eli, boy, I need you to pray for me. She didn't say that. It says, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord. Underline those little words, prayed to the Lord. That was her response. Was it sufficient? Oh, yes, it was. That's precious to the Lord. Do you know we have that access right now? Isn't that so cool to think about? The God of the universe takes into account our lives, what we experience, what we go through day by day. He knows it all. And at any moment, any situation, we can walk right into his throne room because Jesus Christ gave us that access through his blood. I think we're doing a dishonor to him if we don't pray. He made the way so that we would. He provided the way so that we would. And I like Hannah's faith. I like it because she knew there was one who she could talk to. She knew there was one that would find her where she was. I would, I would think it's great. Like her biography. If our biography is written someday, that somebody would say, you know, when he was in need or when she was in need, they prayed. I think that would be a beautiful testimony. We say, but we got to learn to pray. Sometimes we do. We need to be praying people. And I know we are. But can we do better? Yeah. We can pray more. We can learn to pray more. That same God who heard Hannah that day is the one we speak to right now. We can pray. If there's really one thing, if I wanted to start with point one, what is it? that a, a, a godly person can do in an ungodly world, it's to pray. Don't minimize what that is. You're talking to the God of the universe who could do something. Pray. God sees. Do you believe that? Pray. God hears. Do you believe that? Pray. God cares. Do you believe that? Pray. You see where I'm going? It's based on your understanding of who He is. And God can do something about it. God can hold you up, can't He? Yes. God can encourage your heart, can't He? Yes. God can give you strength, can't He? God can give you direction. Let God be God and trust Him. Just trust Him. When everything else seems to be against you, trust Him and pray. Third point, it says, and she wept bitterly. Say, okay, Pastor, now you've got to unwind all that. No, not exactly. Think of these words, she wept bitterly. In verse 13, it says, she was speaking in her heart. In verse number 15, it says, 
that she poured out her soul before the Lord. I'm going to add one more thought to your prayers, and it's simply the word honesty. Honesty. Say, well, I'm honest when I pray. Well, think about this for a minute. When Jesus gave instructions on prayer, in the book of Matthew, chapter number 6, great passage. You've read it many times before, because right at the end of it, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That passage that we've probably all memorized is called the Lord's Prayer. Before he got to that, the first three or four verses, Matthew 6, verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, he gave instructions on prayer. And I think this is kind of fun when you stop and sit back and think, who's the one listening to all these prayers? He is. And I think his instruction would be very useful because how many times has he sat up there and heard prayers and said, oh, no, by the way they prayed. And it's interesting because he goes through things. Don't do this, please. Don't do this, please. I'm listening to these, and I don't want to hear this. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen of men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door. Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, when you are praying, isn't that implying something? You are praying. You, you took the last verse seriously. You said, well, I can go and pray in a corner because the Lord sees me. So when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That little phrase, I learned that years ago. I read that, I think I was in Bible college at the time. It really stunned me because I really never paid attention to that phrase. My Father knows what I need before I ask Him. So, why do we pray then? <laughs> What's the point? Why pray if he already knows it? Why do we have to tell him what he already knows? Prayer is not for God. Prayer is an exercise of faith. And God doesn't need faith, does he? No, guess who does? We do. But we turn it into a ritual. We turn it into a babbling sound, a, a conversation with the Lord that's shallow and careless and indifferent and cold, and the word is meaningless. I want you sometimes to examine your prayer life and look at the way you talk to the Lord and ask yourself, is that the way you talk to your spouse? Is that the way you talk to your children or grandchildren? Is that the way you talk to people in the street? They're just same words all the time. You know what? They say, I heard that before, and they walk away. Meaningless, cold, indifferent. That's not to be our way of prayer. What I like about what Hannah did here is as she prays to the Lord, the tears are coming down her eyes. That's honest. She's bitter to the soul because of what she's going through. That's honest. She didn't... Oh, yes, the Lord knew what it was, but she gave the Lord who she was. 
in honesty. And many times we think, well, I got to dress up. I got to look like Jesse in that tuxedo if I could pray. And God's seen you in your t-shirt before. So often we dress it all up. We speak in some sort of old English phrases and stuff like that because we think that's the only way God hears us. But God sees you now. And God sees you at the lowest point. And God loves it when you speak your heart. He likes tears. He invented them. Many times they say, you can't cry. Yes, you can. I can't pour out my soul. Yes, you can. But he knows. Yes, he knows. And he cares. And he's the one who could do something about it. And out of love, pour out your heart. Honestly. That's what I, I, I love about her praise. <laughs> she wept bitterly before the Lord. Matter of fact, Eli said, man, she must be drunk. Imagine all that the expression she had on her face and her actions. But I like to make that little point here when I talk through this. Yes, her situation was very distressing. But she knew where she could go with it. She prayed. And when she prayed, she was honest. She was honest. I'm just going to ask you, ask you to reflect upon that as we, we dig these things out. I've gone through reference books and looked them up, and almost every time the reference would say this. She was a godly woman who prayed. A godly woman who prayed. We're going to talk about what her prayer was next week, but I just want to leave this right in your lap to contemplate and to learn that we might become like her. Because we need that in our world today, folks. We need that in the world. Don't be afraid to talk to your father honestly. One person said this years ago. You're not likely to knock him off his throne. Talk to him. Heavenly Father, we talk to you right now. What a privilege it is to pray. We need that in our world today. We need to be praying people. I know we're good at complaining. I know from my own self, I could read the news and think things are not going the way I want them to. This world needs a big change. I see that. I see people hurt. I see missionaries captured in in Haiti, as I read in the paper this morning. Kidnapped, probably going to be held for ransom, maybe even be killed. We've seen that recently with Jackson and his brother-in-law. And other things like that seem so far away, and yet that still is the world we live in. And it's so unjust. And it's easy to stand up and and criticize and condemn and not pray. And I pray, Lord, that um, you might help us with our vision here. Not to look at the world and see despair, but look to our Father and see hope. Look to our Father and see care. Look to our Father and see one who loves us so much that he's with us right now. No matter how far down the spiral we are, our God is here. And I thank you, Lord, for being so faithful to us in your love, in your grace, in your mercy, and even in your patience. You've let us sometimes struggle until we came to see that you were the one we needed to talk to in the first place. Lord, we have many needs represented in this congregation today. Many needs. 
and there's no way to identify all of them from a pulpit or even in a prayer, but you already know. You know each and every one, and you know the depth of it. You know the context of it. You know the things that distress. You know the things that bring tears. And you ask us to pray. So, Lord, teach us to pray. Just like your disciples, we say it. Even if we've done it before and many times before, may we become more and more likely to pray first. And I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. May we be different than those in the world around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.